Welcome once again to Free Associations to the Boston University. Somebody, yes. Welcome once again to Free Associations for the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by movie theaters. Movie Why theaters. do they still exist? Oh, Does so you can eat popcorn. Go so, absolutely. So you can buy popcorn, which I do without seeing the movies at several <laughs> movie theaters in my neighborhood. Yeah. So do you, do you pretend like you're going to buy a ticket? No, not or at all. They know me in? by now. They just, they just let me right in. Hey, popcorn guy. Popcorn man. Do you, do you go for it, buttered and salted or, no, or no, sweet? No, no, it's absolutely pure. It's got to be. It's got to be pure. Unadulterated. No, no, no butter. Nothing. Wow, a purist. Wait, how it's really weird. The pure? looks I get when I'm walking down the street with a huge tub of popcorn are really pretty remarkable. How can you get pure, unadulterated, unsalted, unbuttered popcorn at a movie theater? No, you get a little salt, but you just don't that ask for butter. That doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, it does. No. Yeah, it's, There's somebody. In fact, in the movie theater in your hometown, in Arlington, it has some of the best popcorn around. I go there on a regular basis on the way home. For anyone who doesn't know, Don is a popcorn connoisseur. Addict. <laughs> that would be the fair term. Addict would be the fair term. All right. Well, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I am joined by the dynamic duo in Boston <laughs> of Don Thea and Chris Gill. Hello. Hi. And they are in Boston at the Godly Studio. I am now. This I think. This I think we can finally say will be my last episode here in London. And before I go, I want to point something out, which is I have been doing this podcast from my bedroom in London because I don't have a place to go to like you guys have. And uh, we live near Hyde Park in London. And do you know about the the Hyde Park parakeets? No, no. So I don't know the the history of them, but you can go to a spot in Hyde Park, and there are a troop of parakeets that Isn't fly that a around. Gaggle? A gaggle. Uh, I don't know what you An call exaltation. them. Exaltation. Maybe a, a penumbra. <laughs> a whole lot, lot of parakeets, and you can feed them. So if you hold out food, oh, they cool. will come fly down onto your hands, and they will eat from your hands. Now we live about. I would say two, three city blocks away from Hyde Park. And we live across the street from a park, you know, kind of like one of the parks that are uh, uh, in between a a square like you see in uh, Hugh Grant movies. Mm -hmm. And so we have one of those that I'm staring at. And while I'm I'm recording the podcast, sometimes the parakeets will fly into our park and hang out. And I get to watch them while you guys are in a cold, boring studio. (laughs) <laughs> windowless Ouch. that makes me feel terrible windowless. but i know one that, thing i can do to cheer myself my up which is to go into the population health exchange website that always oh, really? that always picks me parakeets? up <laughs> they, there's a lot about parakeets in fact and budgies what else is there what else is there parrots and macaws any any population health learning tools and programs uh i forget i wasn't really paying huh. attention to that but i suspect there might be huh well anyway if, uh, if you are actually listening to this and uh, you really like the parakeets or you've ever fed the parakeets in London, the, uh, the best way to let us know that would be to go onto iTunes and give us a five-star rating yeah. and then fill out a comment which says, I'm giving you this five-star rating because I really like the parakeets in London. That thought, would really I, help us out. I thought iTunes is no longer going to exist. Yeah, it's true. But, you know, they're going to come up what? with something even better. That, that has, okay, so um, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> iTunes are getting rid of it. You're kidding, right? Apple no, announced they're getting rid all. of iTunes. They are. 
Why? They're dissembling it. Yeah, they because they want to drive everyone onto Apple Music and have them stream from wherever they are. Convenient places like rural Zambia, where it's not as easy to get my streaming Apple Music. Are you listening, that, Tim was, Cook? That was that was remarkably specific, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study that assess the impact of medical scribes on the productivity of doctors. Then in our second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we will talk about the Journal of No Big Deal Results. And then in our Amazing and Amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud, or Chris will tell us why we should stop fearing and learn to love naked mole rats. (laughs) (laughs) Anxiety is totally unwarranted. Totally. So, all right, segment one. So this week we're going to look at an article on the use of medical scribes to improve doctor's output. So this was published in the BMJ, which, by the way, I didn't realize is called now the BMJ. Right. I I thought BMJ was an abbreviation for the British Medical Journal, which it used to be, but it is now the actual official name of the journal. Right. It's a lengthenization of BMJ. Hmm. So the study was entitled The Impact of Scribes. On emergency that just slipped medicines. past you there, Matt. What's that? The lengthenization of the BMJ. That's a real, that's a, that's a perfectly cromulent word. <laughs> Oliver cromulent. Have you, ever, have you ever seen the, the Simpsons episode where the, they, they're all obsessed with the word embiggins because the, the hero of the town embiggins the, the every man. And Lisa says, uh, embiggins is not a word. The teacher says, oh, stop it, Lisa. It's a perfectly cromulent word. And now if you look up the word cromulent on the internet, it will say a made-up word made to sound real. I like so, that. There you go. Anyway, impact of scribes on emergency medicines, doctors, productivity, and patient throughput. A multi-center randomized trial by Catherine Walker from the emergency department at Cabrini Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. Now, I'm not going to pretend that this one got overwhelming number of headlines, but it did get some. So the Brisbane Times says, could this simple idea be the key to cutting hospital wait times? Newsmax says the simple way to improve emergency care and health day says medical scribes could improve ER healthcare. So Don, walk us through this study. What 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 do they do and how do they figure out that scribes are apparently good for a so so a scribe is a trained individual who assumes some of the most of the clerical tasks of uh, that a physician would ordinarily be doing during a doctor patient encounter and as we have as the as the burden of reporting and the burden of electronic medical records has increased over the course of the last several decades there's been an outcry from physicians that they're spending all their time um, doing this clerical work and not enough time sort of with that patient doctor interaction so They've been around for a little bit of time, and there have been a number of studies which seem to um, n- go both ways in terms of there being a useful adjunct to what a doctor does. And so what th- this group wanted to do was to sort of take another look at that and do it in a kind of a structured RC- non-blinded RCT way where they um, had a handful of scribes and they would randomly allocate them to physicians in um, five emergency departments in hospitals in Victoria State in Australia. And their outcome was whether it increased the productivity of the physician, whether it decreased the amount of time that the patient was in the emergency department, and whether it was uh, cost effective when you take into consideration the cost training of these scribes and the 
the salary paid to them in comparison to the salaries paid by the physicians. So, as I mentioned, it was five ERs in uh, Victoria State. They were public, they were Medicare, they were pediatric, it was private, tertiary, so they really tried to get an array of different settings, and there were different differing physician roles. In the Australian setting, physicians um, oftentimes are sort of the main triage. So somebody comes into the ED with a problem and they talk to the triage doctor and then he allocates whether they need to be seen immediately or they can be seen um, less urgently. So they had they, the, the, the kinds of things that these scribes would do that were previously done by or would be done be done by the physicians in settings where they were not assigned a scribe were things like in-room documentation of the history, the physical, the medical plan. They wouldn't be making a medical plan or a diagnosis or a disposition. They would be just recording it from what the physician said. Um, There would be primary care letters, adding clinical details to requests, calling in radiology staff. So all of the sort of tasks that don't require a level of knowledge about medicine that um, is required by, by the physician. So they were randomly allocated by sh- by shift. The scribes would use a computer for note taking um, while they were sitting in with uh, this uh, patient encounter. And on occasion, the patient uh, said to the physician that they were uncomfortable having a third person in the room. Although that happened very rarely, the overwhelming majority of the scribes were there. The uh, scribes were half medical students and half pre-med students. So they actually had a little bit of uh, pre-medical and, 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 and um, minor medical um, training um, prior to this. Uh, as I mentioned, the outcomes, the primary outcome was the difference in productivity or the number of patients that were seen per unit of time between physicians who had a patient encounter that was what they call scribed versus non-scribed. And the secondary outcomes were the, the door-to-doctor time at the time between when the patient walked in the door and they actually encountered um, a physician, the length of the ED stay, and then something which I didn't understand, which was regional physician's productivity. I guess that must mean just the productivity according to what different setting, i.e. different doctor, different task that the doctor was performing, and whether it was a different, whether it was a pediatric emergency room or, or, or one of the, a private or public. They also looked at the safety, whether there were, there were, there were any errors, uh, medical errors that occurred during the course of this encounter that could be ascribed to the scribe. That's Chris's job, to make the puns. Um, they one. also looked at cost effectiveness. So they, they, ca- they determined that they needed a thousand shifts. So they had a hundred scribed and a hundred non-scribed per each of the five hospitals for a thousand. And they had 88 physicians that were um, participating, and there were 589 scribe um, intervals or sessions, and 3,263 non-scribe sessions, so far in excess non-scribe sessions versus scribe sessions. And there were about 5,000 patient encounters that were scribed and about 23,000 patient encounters that were unscribed. And the results were basically that the scribes did increase the productivity mildly. It went from 1.13 patients seen and processed per hour in an unscribed um, scenario versus 1.31 patients per hour. There was no difference in the door-to-doctor time, and the length of stay for the patients was approximately 19 minutes shorter if there was a scribe that was involved. And there were 16 events, sort of adverse events with scribes, which they calculated to be about one in 
um, 300 per patient um, encounter. And then the cost-benefit uh, analysis indicated that there was um, a savings overall when you took into consideration the time and the salaries and the training costs. That's basically it. That's basically it. So, Chris, I'm going to ask you the usual question, which is, what did you think of the study? But the other question that I'm going to ask you is, I want you to make the case for why the study was important enough for us to talk about. Because you were the one who said that you you like this study, and we all know that choosing a study for this program means that they are going to get the free associations bump. We all know that downloads go way up after we talk about it. Actually, if somebody could do that study, there's a way to we estimate should, a null effect. I we think should that probably would be really uh, interesting. buy Scribe stock before we go live on this. <laughs> why, why, why was this one? Did you think this one was an important one for us to talk about? Because I think to, to many of our listeners, this might sort of seem like a you know not a an yawner. obvious one. Okay, well, yeah. the, the 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 easiest answer of all is that my wife is a pediatrician. And oh. So she is in this world of electronic medical records. The, the particular EMR that they use is this thing called Epic, which actually I used as a resident when I was, you know, 20 years ago. But Epic has gotten super complicated and it takes so much of her time just to sort of click boxes and, and uh, you know, do little administrative tasks. And, and it, you know, the response, because she is a very conscientious doctor, is that she does not chart while she's in the room. And the consequence is that she comes home every single night and charts for like three hours. And none of that is, is built. So like the, the EMR has, has in no ways sped up the process of patient care delivery. What it has done is increased the administrative burden upon the physicians. And so this, uh, you know, movement towards the scribe is, is, a, is a rational attempt to counter that, that, that trend, because I think this actually has become somewhat of a crisis in healthcare, in the way that healthcare is delivered. So I thought that this was a, a timely study. I, I will say that I thought it was interesting, but I, I really wish it had gone a little bit further, because I think they missed a couple things. That they, measured, they measured some things that are practical, like time, like patient you know, throughput through the ER. But that one depresses me, because the point of this is not really to see how, how fast can we drive the doctors to see as many patients as possible in a shorter period of time? That is antithetical, in fact, to my vision of how you know, good medical care should be provided. So what I would have loved them to do is to look at other things like, you know, what is the impact of the scribe on the doctor's quality of life? After the ER doctor shifts, how many hours do they sit there dictating their notes or tre- or putting their notes into the EMR? And they specifically left that out of this and analysis. They, and they left that out of this analysis because I would love to know, because that time is not compensated. And I would love to know, did it in fact save them two hours a day of sitting there after their work is, is officially done yet still working? That would be great. I would like to know, does, does it actually impact the quality of care? Because you think that, that you know, the, the, the total amount of time that they recorded that was spent per patient encounter, you know, it, it uh, I guess the throughput, right, increased. So the, the total amount of time per patient went down slightly. Okay, so, but is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? You know, I mean, it, it seems like a more efficient thing from the hospital administrator's perspective. But but I would, what I would really like to know is like how much of the time when they're sitting in the room are they focused on their patient as opposed to clicking boxes on a computer and like not mm-hmm. making eye contact and sort of, you know, because from, from a patient's perspective, when, you're, when your provider is sitting there 
typing away on a machine and looking away from you, as a patient, you don't feel the love, you know? You're sort of like, hey, I'm over here. Stop fiddling with that <laughs> device. Pay attention to me. I would have loved to know how did the patients feel about it that didn't change their perception of the quality of care they were receiving. So there was all sorts of like tantalizing but totally unanswered questions. And I found it a little bit depressing, even though I liked the idea and I liked the study and I thought they did it well. I found it a little bit depressing that they focused on throughput as being like the win. And to me, that's like the bottom line for the bean count. But it's not really about medicine. Yeah, that was my takeaway on this. I found myself just thinking, like, did this study need to be done? Mm. I mean, is it in any way surprising to learn that if you give some uh, give an emergency medicine doctor a scribe, they will be able to spend less time with the patients if that is your goal? But that, that 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 should reduce patient time. It doesn't seem to me that that was a really something that we needed to figure out so much as, and I, I do accept this part, which is if, if we believe that it is going to improve patient quality of care, maybe quality of life for the physician, maybe reduce my time that I have to spend in the, in the doctor's office or in the emergency room, and we think those are good things, it comes down to cost. And it's primarily about whether or not this is affordable and cost-effective. And they did do a cost-effective analysis, but I have to admit I found that cost-effective analysis fairly, you know, not unconvincing, but it seemed, as they describe it, it was a post-hoc analysis. So it wasn't the the focus of what they were doing. They they, they did this after the fact. And it, it came at across one side a only. At, at a post-hoc analysis. And I, I was a little surprised by that because it seems to me that 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 we 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 largely knew that the maybe we didn't know the the amount of time that it was going to reduce the interactions, but I mm-hmm. think we knew that it was going to reduce the interactions. Right. Right. There, there were other couple um, sort of downsides that they hinted at, but didn't really uh, explore in much depth. One, which is, in, I have to give credit, was raised by my wife, which is that in her experience, when she has medical students in the room, that her, her patients are often reluctant to, to sort of be quite as, as uh, forthcoming about the real reasons why they're there in the patient in the, in the doctor's office, because they're embarrassed and they don't want a third person like in the room hearing what is said. And so she's, she's very concerned that the, the scribes will create that sort of barrier to, to, you know, open discourse. Another thing that she uh, mentioned to me based on experiences from her, her colleagues in internal medicine who already use scribes is that the turnover of scribes is incredibly high. You mentioned at the beginning that the, the scribes here were pre-med students and medical students. Well, medical students get super busy and disappear and go off and become clerkships and become doctors. And they do, they do not remain scribes for long. Mm. Pre-med students, their one goal in life is to long, no longer be a pre-med student, but to right. be a medical student. So they're not going to stay for long. So even though they have a modicum of medical training, they are not a population, a stable population from a work pers- perspective. So the, the effect is that you're always hiring and rehiring and retraining scribes. And so it, it, it's actually a difficult model to implement long term. That, I think those are my my main, my, my main concerns that are not addressed here. I, th- I think the two things that 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 I that I found in this paper that s- sort of go to the validity um, of the findings were that uh, they offered training for the docs, but none of the docs um, accepted training. <laughs> that was going to be one of my one of my Which last words. Right, yeah. right. How surprised were you by that? No, I was not at all surprised. Not, not at all surprised. At all. <laughs> not at all. They're like, so, you got to be kidding me. So they, you know, they just like walked in the room, room cold and they didn't really know how to act, probably um, optimally use the, these particular scribes. And then the other thing was the randomization. And I think that, you know, to sort of randomize it so that you don't develop, so there's not a, a, a relationship developed between the doctor and the scribe. And I think that there probably are, you know, 
really good relationships that are really efficient and not so good relationships that are far less efficient. And I, and I, and I think that what you would want to do would be to really assess a, a, a good doctor-scribe relationship, because that obviously would be optimal. And probably if, in fact, you could find scribes that would hang around for a while, that would be the way that it would evolve and fall out, which would be that when there's a good working relationship, it would, it would be a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. I was, so I want to, I want to use this to make a, a, what may seem like a, an obscure epidemiology point that I know you guys are going to roll your eyes about, but I, I think can potentially matter, which is. Which would be totally yeah, obvious I, on, on a podcast. I think that this may suffer from what we refer to as the consistency problem or the multiple versions of treatment problem, which is that this isn't one intervention. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about a, a a drug, you know, the drug is is pretty much the same. You give it to everybody and, and it's going to interact with the, the body in you know, more or less the same way. But it's so we can think of it as the same treatment that everybody is getting, whereas anything that's behavioral in nature or that is dependent on the skill of the person practicing, you're not really you, you, your effect that you're going to observe is going to be entirely dependent on that skill. And therefore, you're not going to be able to translate that into anything that comes across populations. Now they had, I think, what, how many, 19, uh, sorry, 12 scribes. Mm -hmm. So to begin with, you already have a lot of variability. And as Don, as you point out, it's, it's not just scribe, it's scribe, doctor, uh, chemistry or, Mm -hmm, or, or interaction ability, ability to work together. That's going to determine how effective this, and then it's the ability, you know, of the, of the doctor to utilize that person. So I I don't know that we learn, you know, I don't know that a 19 minute reduction that was found in this study is going to translate into a 19 minute reduction in another study. You could implement this. It could be a total, total dud in some populations. You get much better, you know, larger effects in in a third population. So I think this one is entirely dependent on how it's implemented. Mm-hmm. Another really important thing that that was danced around a little bit in the study in terms of the of the the, the adverse events that they recorded, it would be really important to understand at a much larger scale, what is the aggregate impact in terms of patient safety or the the, the accuracy of medical diagnosis or the precision of treatments issued of having a scribe? Because if you, if you roll, if you read through the list of um, adverse events that occurred, it seems to me that there's sort of an, an equal number of uh, instances where the the doctor made a mistake and the scribe spotted it right. versus the scribe made a mistake and the doctor spotted it. Right. And one has to wonder about, well, what about the times when neither of them m- noted the mistake, which would then not end up as an adverse events perhaps because no one knew it happened. Right. So, you know, that sort of exploring the boundaries of the risk benefit ratio more precisely would seem to be very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so another thing, so when you think about, you know, the usual stuff that we critique studies for, there was, there was very, very little baseline information on these populations to be able to compare whether the periods during which the, the scribes were used and the periods which the scribes were not used were in fact comparable. And I would think, I, I don't totally understand exactly what these encounters were, but I would think there could be a lot of variability in how much time you spend with a patient, depending on what the condition is that they're coming in for. And and, you know, were those balanced across arms? Well, there was a there was a lot more unscribed time than scribed time, just because of the way that they they did the randomization. But we don't have a lot of information to tell us whether or not we should should believe that these are good balanced populations, which kind of surprised me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. So jury's a little bit out. We liked the paper, but could be more depth, more depth, yeah, more questions. I, I, 
to be answered and yeah yeah agreed and when i say the jury's out i mean i i I don't have a huge problem with what they did i mean i i i I have some but i mean i generally buy the idea that in their population this worked and was effective it's just i I didn't feel like it answered the the questions that probably you'd want to have answered yeah i mean i think chris is your your point about uh, did, did it really affect the quality not not necessarily well the quality of the interaction between the patient and the doctor that's one thing but also did it compromise the uh the 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 bottom line which is you know a good interaction between the doctor and the patient which results in a firm diagnosis and a you know and a and a reasonable treatment plan and we have no idea whether it has that effect so it's sort of it's sort of you know, it's sort of, it, there was a difference, but does it really matter? What is the impact? Yeah, well, the hospital administrators will be happy that yeah. their ear docs can see more patients per hour. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, but that, from a patient's perspective, doesn't necessarily make me feel particularly reassured. Or necessarily yeah. from a doctor's perspective. And the doctors don't just want to be driven, driven, driven. Right. You know, that's that's not a plus, necessarily. It's yeah. interesting. Right, any, any last comments before I take the last word? Nope. Go ahead. Uh, okay, so a couple of things that popped out to me on this one. Two physicians withdrew mid-study as they did not find scribes useful. I thought that was just an interesting hmm. fact. Second of all, um, and I don't know if this was is a BMJ thing. I don't think it necessarily is because I looked at some other ones. But I noticed that uh, the limitations and strengths section was the second paragraph of the discussion, which does not fit the mold that I always say, hmm. where the discussion, the, the limitations are always the second to last paragraph. So that you don't have to, you know, you have to, to, to already have drawn your conclusions, but you don't end on a downer. So, and last but not least, did you notice that one of the uh, co-authors was Adam West? No, really? Of Batman? Batman? Batman. 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 Robin, right? I'm going to assume it's a different Adam West. Oh, man. All right. Let's move on to our second Boy segment Wonder. where we want to get into an article that was published in Vox by Kelsey Piper, which announced a new journal. It's a journal in the economics field, so it's not something that we uh, may necessarily have come across. And it is called the Series of Unsurprising Results in Economics, otherwise abbreviated to SURE. The idea of the journal is aimed at fighting publication bias. So the the first paper that they published, as an example, was by uh, Nick Huntington-Klein and Andrew M. Gill of California State University, which looked at whether informing students about the benefits of taking more credit hours to improve their odds of graduating would motivate them to take more classes and finish school sooner. And the answer is, no, no. it does not. <laughs> and the idea here, the idea here is that nope. you have a journal that is dedicated to now so this is a little unclear to me is it to publishing null results or unsurprising results the the title of the journal is unsurprising and i don't know that null findings are always necessarily unsurprising and i don't know that uh non-null findings are always a surprise you know a surprise right so it isn't clear to me exactly what what the focus here is but i the general idea is we're trying to combat publication bias. The idea that if we have something that is not particularly interesting or is a null finding that we have the file drawer problem. These studies get stuck into the the file drawer. They never get published. And yeah. then the studies that the odd study that does find a significant result for that particular exposure outcome relationship is the one that does get published. And we end up thinking things that are, are interesting findings are real findings when in fact, if we had published the totality of the literature, we would know that these aren't, aren't 
real associations or right. real effects, I should the, say. The problem, the problem is that they're going to need a lot of journals, or this journal is going to have to do a lot of publications because, you know, as as we've we've mentioned many times on the pod, and Professor Enides has mentioned in his his uh, you know why most publications are, are published findings are false. The 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 null findings exceed the true findings by a significant margin. So we might need like ten versions of this journal in medical sciences to sort of really start to even come close to balancing out the true uh, array of null results that are out there and dull, null and dull results. And a lot of peer, a lot of peer reviewers too. Yeah. So the question is, is this, I mean, is this a good idea or is this really just a gimmick? The, 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 they've named it the series of unsurprising results in economics. Sure. Right. So there's clearly a bit of, of humor going on here. And so is this, is this really just a joke? I don't think it's sustainable. Why not? Uh, because, because in part because of what Chris said, and you know, I think I think that uh, I don't know I don't know what the the model would be to really have the entire system to support the review and publication, uh, the review and and acceptance of high quality though null resulting studies could be um, that would that would be able to to keep a, a, an effort like this alive, especially at the numbers that Chris alludes to. I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an ideal aspiration that I, I don't think is achievable. Mm-hmm. I, I wish there was a, a, a different way of doing this. Like that, that it started with the grant that there is a, there's a commitment by NIH or Gates for, or, you know, whoever is giving you the money that you will publish results irrespective of the results of that trial and that there be some platform established to do that. And it could be that this platform is quite dull, like, you know, the public, not the public library of assignments, but the, what, what is the, what's the one they call for the National uh, Library of Medicine? PubMed Central, mm. right? So, but again, how would you do that without a peer review process? That That is you the, have the to trick have a pe- yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't I mean, quite see to, it. You have to. You have to uh, assure that the, the quality of the of the science, not necessarily just the results. Yeah, agree. Agree. Just because something is null doesn't mean that it is doesn't require rigorous peer review. I mean, we could no. So, so one of the problems that I have with this is 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 the fact that they called it series of unsurprising results. Unsurprising implies we really already knew this, mm-hmm. and we just needed confirmation. Now, I think they were trying to get more at just not like headline grabbing type results but but where's the line between headline grabbing and and null which i think is is what we're really trying to get at is that people are not publishing things that are are null and and my problem with that is null findings are important findings especially sure. when they are precise null findings so you know, if you can do the study, I, I feel like I've said this a million times, but if you can do the study that convincingly demonstrates that eating ice cream doesn't cause cancer, that is incredibly useful information for ice cream eaters. I'd like to know. I'd like to know. So I want that study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I want that null finding published. So if we're talking about null findings, I think that those should be, again, when well done, should be published in in the same journals where the non-null findings are mm-hmm. published, because otherwise no one's ever going to read them. If, but I guess you the find them hand, in lit searches, you know. If yeah. you're doing a systematic. If on the other hand we're talking about really a boring study that you know no no one ever had any interest in the question in the first place, then who cares? Right. Right. You know, one of the other things that we've talked about on these podcasts th- through through the. the long series of episodes that we've done is the reproducibility crisis. And, and I think that the, the, 
the comment you made uh, really resonated with me, Matt, where you said, do we already know this? And if we already know this, it implies that this is, this is not necessarily a contribution to the literature. But at some point, we do have to have some confirmation. We have to have observations or results confirmed with um, additional studies that, 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 that support it. And you can't, you know, we, we, it can't just be a one-off. It has to be, you know, there have to be several looks at from, from different directions in, in, in terms of, of, uh, whether it's a real finding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just looked at the, the, their website and they, they say, sure benefits writers by providing an outlet for interesting, high quality, but risky in terms of uncertain results, research projects. So interesting, seems to contradict unsurprising. I, I know it's not a direct contradiction, but to me, that sounds like a contradiction. And so I, I'm just unclear on what this effort is intended to do and why we wouldn't be publishing those high-risk studies where we weren't sure of the outcome in the same journals where... You know, where, it, it, yeah. it also fails to address the other half of publication bias, which is not just the journals are you know, not enthusiastic about accepting dull papers, which have, you know, unsurprising or null results, but that investigators are demotivated to to submit those articles because they are unsurprising and boring results because their hypothesis was not sustained. In fact, I think investigators have an inherent conflict of interest when their pet theory has been disproven by their own experiment, and they may not even want to mention that. You know, so let's just just sweep that one under. So of of all the sort of, you know, attempts or strategies that we have discussed on the pod to combat publication bias. The the one that I think still resonates with me most strongly is this contract between the the investigators and the journal based on the protocol and the specific aims uh, and the the SAP, the the analysis plan that is established before they do the experiment and that the journal will commit to publishing the results regardless of the experiment. But it also holds the the investigators accountable for fulfilling their half of the bargain that they will also submit the paper and not just say, Oh, it was a negative result. You know, blah, let's, let's move on. Yeah. So I agree with everything you just said there, Chris, but that's a case where, you know, we want to get this result out there. We did the experiment because we thought it was an interesting hypothesis and we want to be able to publish it even if it turns out to be null, but that's not uninteresting. That's just, no, I think, you know, so you're, I mean, if you read the the New England Journal of Medicine, they definitely published null findings of, you know, large randomized trials that didn't find an effect of the thing that we thought might work. So big, big drug that, you know, turns out to be ineffective. So it isn't that you can't publish null findings if they're really interesting. This is meant to be, I think, for things that are less interesting. And I'm just not clear on what the incentive is to be doing uninteresting research, let alone <laughs> publishing it. Mm-hmm. Let, let, me, let me propose the obverse of this. I don't know if you guys notice this. Obverse? Yeah. Is that a word? Yeah, that's a word. The, I don't know if you, if you guys um, follow this, but in the Washington Post a couple of days ago, there was a major story about Pfizer and about how Pfizer had done an internal study, retrospective analysis of a whole lot of individual cases where they looked at the development of Alzheimer's disease. And they looked at a whole, it sounds like it pretty much was a fishing expedition, but they looked at a whole bunch of potential predictors for Alzheimer's disease. And they found that prior use of Embril, 
which is their, you know, one of their, their, their drugs. This is the TNF blocker. The TNF blocker. Prior use of Embril conferred a 67% decrease in the likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease. And, yep. they, and they very specifically chose not to publish that. And, and that was dug up by the Washington Post. And they gave them a huge amount of grief about this because, it, you know, they implied that, you know, if you did the study and if it was done well, why wouldn't you publish that? And then there was a whole sort of deconstruction of what their motivations might have been because Embril's coming off patent and they didn't want to sort of tip their hand and might, somebody else might look at this class of drugs because it might, you know, hit the mother load for Alzheimer's, which should be an incredibly big market. But what the research, but what the um, representatives from Pfizer said was that we, yeah, we looked at it. We thought it was interesting, but we felt like it did not stand up to our internal scientific scrutiny, and we chose not to publish it in part because we felt that the science wasn't rigorous enough. And f the comments were by a lot of people, well, that's not enough. You should publish it, put it all out there, and let the community decide. Mm -hmm. So it really is a situation which is which is kind of turned what we just talked about on its head, and. I haven't heard about, you know, something like that happening before in that setting with the private sector and those potential motivations. And I think it raises a whole bunch of really interesting questions. And I was going to su suggest it as a pod, but apparently Pfizer won't release the data, so we can't, we can't assess it. So uh, that's a really interesting one. I mean, so obviously that wouldn't be solved by uh, this particular no. journal. But, but, but it's a really interesting case because, you know, do we want... So I don't. Obviously, we don't. We have reason to not necessarily trust the motivations of a drug company. But let's say their their motivations were were legitimate. That do we really want you know bad science getting published, or do we feel like well, if it was done to the best of their abilities, even if it couldn't say you know control. I'm assuming these were observational studies. This wasn't a trial. Yeah, I think it was a know, retrospective we, analysis of sort of yeah. panel data. Right, so it's sort of hypothesis generating. Well, then it maybe it should be mm -hmm. out there, and so it's a it's a it's a it's a tough one. Obviously, they have they have incentives that are are not aligned with, with yeah. publishing. Why not put it all out there? Why not be transparent? Why not let the reader decide whether this is a good study or a crappy study? Yeah, well, who's the reader? I mean, if we're talking about a, the, the the scientific community, then yeah, I, that's what I, I mean. agree with you. But that you, we know that's going to end up in the in the news with headlines that say. In fact, I would actually bet, based on the headlines that were in the Washington Post, people are going to believe that this works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's where peer review comes in, um, yeah. in part. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting because it sounded like it was an internal struggle, struggle within Pfizer. Yeah. It was the immunology team that said, these are really interesting findings. We ought to publish this. And it was other teams not in, in that realm that were saying, no, let's not. Anyway, what I just thought- of, What if their justification was- we're not gonna we're not gonna publish this because we think this is hypothesis generating. And what we're gonna do is we're actually gonna run a trial to try and answer this question because it would be you know it would be another way we could market this drug. Well, according to the article, they specifically rejected that possibility yeah. because no, they no, said, no, no. They I, said I, I, the science isn't strong enough to support the the expense of a of a trial on this. But it's it you know if it's real, it's a pretty profound effect, a two thirds reduction agreed. in Alzheimer's disease. But agreed, I, I but you know I, I think that you know we have pointed out the difficulty in doing sort of long-term prospective or, 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 yeah. or observational studies of Alzheimer's disease. It's just really, really, really difficult. Yeah. So fair, uh, fair enough. I don't think we're, we're going to answer this one. But one last question back on the, on the topic of this journal. You know, like I, 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 I went and looked this up because I was concerned that this was actually a joke, that I have been known to fall for these things before. So I did look it up. At least I, I think it's legit. 
But <laughs> then, then the question becomes, is the is the title of the journal helpful in us taking it you know, seriously? Or do you think it actually hurts in that it's sort of gimmicky? I think it under, undermines their their the seriousness of their effort because it's a serious yeah, issue. Yeah, I think I think if you're if you're really trying to do this, uh, I think you would yeah. you would go with something a little bit more. I don't know. Journal sounded. of unbiased science. How about yeah. that? I suppose you'd have to you have to you'd have to make sure you didn't have anything that made it sound like it was a predatory journal as well. Right. 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 Yeah. So finally, let's move into our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. Don, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go first this time since I made you go last last time. Oh boy! All right, so I have an article that was published in International Society for Microbial Ecology by Isabel Reich, Janetta Dorta, and others from Spain. Okay. And essentially, what they did is they quantified the level, the the burden of viruses that come from the atmosphere that are raining down on us oh, at all times. Wow. Mm. And this is known viruses. And there's a, there's a project that's being um, supported by USAID, which is intended to look at all of the estimated 1.7 million unknown potentially pathogenic viruses. So these guys just looked at the viruses that are known, and one might only imagine how many viruses there are that weren't measured. So mm. basically what they did is they took these virus traps and they put them at a very high level in the Sierra Madre Mountains in Spain. And they did a series of, of uh, runs of this and they determined that there are over 800 million viruses that are deposited daily on every square meter of these areas high up in the Sierra Madre Mountains. And what, why what, they, was that, what was that number? 800 million viruses per square meter are raining down on us every day. And it could be worse of the lowlands, cool. right? Well, they, apparently back the, the, the ratio of viruses to bacteria is higher the lower you go, only because bacteria become more numerous because they're rarer at, at altitude. But they, they also found that um, th these viruses are sort of swept up from the Sahara and from sort of local surroundings and they're kind of attached to the dust that gets elevated into the upper atmosphere, go across the Atlantic and then rain down uh, on the United States. So I, I just thought that that number was far in excess of what I thought was raining down on top of my head as I'm walking the streets. And kind that of is astounding. So we are, in other words, we are constantly being bombarded. Rained upon by 800 million viruses. And inhaling all of that stuff. Oh, right. Constantly. Right. And presumably most of them are benign, Right. Well, apparently, yeah. We're still although here. you know, you know, I mean, there, there are all sorts <laughs> the of evidences before you. <laughs> I mean, there are all sorts of diseases and sicknesses and illnesses just kind of crop up out of nowhere. Well, I'm just so grateful to my lymphocytes. I just want to give you guys a big shout out. <laughs> well done, good job, good guys. Job, good job. guys. Keep it up. Good job, guys. <laughs> so the, the deposition rates of viruses were nine to four hundred and sixty-one times greater than the rates for bacteria, oh even gosh. at those elevations. Wow. That is absolutely fascinating. I would never have guessed anything like that. 800 million per day. I would have guessed like 20. <laughs> 
There was this a veritable uh, blanket of viruses. There was this sort of uh, iconoclastic uh, ID attending back at uh, Worcester State Hospital when I was a med student called Richard Glue. And uh, every time he got a new crop of fellows and med students to come past him, he would give this lecture about how the world is covered in a fine fecal patina. Mm-hmm. And he would smile and giggle and he had a little bow tie. Um, and he, 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 he's right. And like Don, you've just provided sort of empirical evidence of this. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> because we're also covered with saliva. Hey, <laughs> wow. Our immune systems go, you know, they do in a bang up job. So all cool. right. Chris, what do you got for us? Well, I wanted to talk about a, a trivial issue about the de novo origins of multicellularity and response to predation. Yeah, no, we were just talking about that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I this, it comes up all the time. This is yeah. uh, from the journal uh, Scientific Reports, which is one of the nature subjournals, and the lead author is Heron. And he, he, he was sort of curious about the... You know the origins of multicellular life on the on the on the planet, and we can stipulate that there's a lot of multicellular animals on the planet. Um, I don't know if if what the breakdown between unicellular and multicellular animals is, because there's a heck of a lot of bacteria that are unicellular, but. You know, clearly, multicellularity is a very common outcome of evolution, and it has evolved many, many, many times because we have fungi, you know, and we have kelp, and we have humans, we have insects, and we have birds. You know, we have multicellularity has occurred over and over and over and over and over again. And so it's sort of obvious that this is something that just happens. And the reason it happens is that, you know, one of the reasons we believe it happens is that, that little things get eaten by bigger things. And so if you can make yourself bigger, it makes it harder for the bigger things to eat you because you're now bigger than the things that were previously eating you. So multicellularity is, is, is probably driven in part by predation. And so he wanted okay. to, to test this theory empirically because we have fossil records for multicellular organisms, but the, you know, the smaller the multicellular organs get, the less we have a fossil record. So when we're talking about like, you know, Volvox or something like that, or, you know, we have no fossil record of that at, at, at all. So we don't really know what happened to the initial transition point between unicellular and multicellularity because there is no fossil record for that whatsoever. So what they tried to do this is to, is to study this experimentally using this sort of very simple model of a, a kind of an algae called Chlamydomonas reinhardtii. Uh, which is a common algae. I don't know what it does, but it's an algae that lives as a unicellular organism in ponds. And then there's also this creature that we're all very fond of that we know and love called paramecium and paramecium eat algae unicellular algae. And so what they did yep. is they set up an experiment where they grew a bunch of these, these chlamydia, chlamydomonas guys, and they just let them do their thing without any interference. And they remained unicellular. They just grew and grew and grew and grew and continued to be unicellular sort of indefinitely. But when you put paramecium's into the dish with them, they became multicellular. Cool. So cool. Wow. And they, they did it quickly. It was like within 100 generations, they became multicellular animals. Wow. And they did it in, in three different ways. So one of them, which was like the most rudimentary, is that they started to secrete this sort of gluey extracellular matrix, which kind of like stuck them together. So they became glued to each other. So it, it was like a very crude way of making a multicellular organism by basically creating this sort of like glue trap. That basically just stapled them together. Stapled them together, right. And yeah. it not only captured the like the daughter algae that were budding off of the mother algaes, but it would also capture free swimming algaes that would get stuck in this. And so they would also benefit. And so it was polyclonal. It was lots of different sort of genetically unrelated algaes glomming together. So that was one way they but did, did they, this. But did they eventually start acting as a unified organism? Um, I think they were on the transition here, but it, uh. it, it made it hard for the paramecium to eat them because they were too big, yeah. right? And plus it was all gluey. But there was another way that they did this, which was, and, and the 
And the daughter cells, I should mention, would bud off into, as, as individual algaes and would sort of swim away and like maybe form their own glue trap colonies elsewhere. The second strategy that these things did was to create true poly, uh, sort of uniclonal, genetically identical colonies where they would just stick to each other and become giant big globs of algaes, which were too big for the, for the, the paramecium to eat. But when they would, when they would reproduce, they would set off like individual cell budding cells. So they can kind of like freely look for new mm. habitats to live in. And then the third one, which was the most interesting of all, is that these things started to create multicellular daughter mm. cells. Mm. So true evolution, true evolution. So now they've created these big sort of glob colonies of algaes and they send off these daughter colonies, which are also big blob things that can't be eaten by the paramecians. And when you took away the paramecians, they wouldn't do this. Wow. And I was like, wow, it happened so fast. Wow. Fascinating. It was, yeah, I just I thought this was like, that is so cool. What a neat, what a neat bit of science they did. So that's Very what I cool. wanted to talk about. Very cool. All right. Well, I will uh, finish this up with uh, taking us back to basics. So can either of you guys tell me the definition of epidemiology? Oh, God. Upon the people. No, no, that's the, that is the, that's what the words, definition. Yeah, 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 but what is the definition of epidemiology? It's the study of populations, isn't it? It's how to remove a pump handle. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a, sub, was, it's a sub-discipline of psychiatry where we talk about people who are very vexed by living in a two by two square box. <laughs> that's God. an interesting, interesting, no, I was, so I was always taught that it was the study of the distribution and determinants of diseases in human populations. Oh, that, Okay. That, 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 yeah, that sounds that right. Vaguely? I was going to say that. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was always heard. Seeing as the but three turns, of us are technically epidemiologists, it's nice to know this at last. I'm not. I'm definitely not. <laughs> it, turns out, it turns out there are other definitions, which I was not aware of until today when I was trying to get ready for a, a presentation that I have to give because I looked up epidemiology on the Urban Dictionary. And there are two definitions in the Urban Dictionary for epidemiology. Is the one of first, them naughty? No, no. So the first is medicine that deals with how disease starts and how it spreads out, as well as how to control said disease. What? Hmm. As in, as in the doctor used epidemiology to cure the killer fart. <laughs> I don't think that's right. I think that's no? way wrong. <laughs> okay, well, well, let's try the second definition then, which is epidemiology. What happens when you don't get into med school the first time around? <laughs> As in, I just got rejected from medical school. Oh, well, there's always epidemiology. Oh, Matt. Or public health. Matt, are you still licking your wounds? Which is a reminder that we do not always get to define ourselves. And others will do it for us. Okay. Oh, that's well, funny. That's funny. You went not, to Bates was, College, right? I did. Yeah. Why? Mathematics, right? Didn't you study uh, math no. or something? What did you study? No, English English literature. Why? No, eff- no, no, no way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We had no I idea know. you were that erudite. Oh, I'm totally erudite. I am as erudite as you could get. <laughs> Is that all how right. you know all about pop culture? Especially, especially having lived in England for six months. That's exactly exactly. So that is the end of our program. It, uh, Thankfully, one, <laughs> one quick note for you to our listeners, which is that we are going to be taking a little bit of a a summer hiatus because of my transition back to the States and the general malaise. No, malaise isn't the right word. What is it that we do in the summer? We become dormant. We go into (laughs) summer hibernation. Lassitude. uh, We will think about whether or not we're going to put out a... (laughs) uh, 
uh, best of episode or something like that. But uh, we'll we'll be away for just a little bit, but we will be back. And in the meantime, if you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a topic for us to take on. You could tweet us at, at @pophealthyx, or you could tweet me at, at @prof_matt_fox, or Chris at, at id.gill, or Don at, at @dthea1. And I still say Chris's, even though I don't think he's actually even on Twitter. But I, I, uh, I do have an account. Is there? Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for his tremendous sound and editing work. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we will be back as soon as we possibly can with our next episode. Mm-hmm.